Well, we're in the midst of a series called Blessed. And, and blessed talks about a life that is, well, in a word, blessed. It's a life that you can have right now and you don't have to wait till you get to heaven. It's life lived in the kingdom of God. In fact, Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven because it's like having a little bit of heaven while you're still on earth because you can adopt the government that rules in heaven into your life even while you're down here on this earth. The principles that govern this life are shared in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 5, the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes referred to as the Beatitudes or Blesseds. We've covered a few so far, so let's look at what we've covered by way of review. First, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I admit my failure and turn control over to God. It's where it all starts. It's when you recognize that you've been living in a kingdom all along. It was your kingdom, and you were in charge, and you were sitting on the throne. So if that's going really well for you, then I recommend that you just continue. Okay? But most of us have gotten to a point where we're going like, you know, this is not working. Okay? I thought I could do this. I thought, in fact, I was the best person to do this. But my kingdom is in chaos. That confession, that admission, is a PowerPoint in which you can step into the kingdom of God. God is just waiting. Jesus is just waiting to take over responsibility for your life. The second beatitude says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, it's for sure that God does care about people who are hurting. All people. God is a compassionate God. That's not what this verse is addressing. All of the Beatitudes need to be considered in the context of the other Beatitudes. He's talking about your response to turning control of your life over to God. This is a strange thing. You've not lived your life in the past this way. Since you were about probably two or three years old, you've been running the show yourself. So when you get to the bottom and you turn over control to God, at first it feels great. And then the next morning, it feels really awkward and uncomfortable because you've been running the show all the rest of your life. So at that moment, and generally it just happens overnight. In fact, when we started preaching this sermon and I preached this message, I warned you that something would happen on Monday morning if you turned your life and control of your life over to God on Sunday. And that would be you'd wake up on Monday morning and find that you had at some time knocked God off the throne and put your big butt right back on there. Right? Because that's what we do. We've been doing it all our lives. It's so natural. And God understands that. He doesn't say, well, then forget you. If you don't want me to run your life, I'm out of (laughs) here. He just says, let me know when you're ready for me to sit down again. And you can do it right at that moment. You don't have to let another moment pass. The second principle says, I return to the cross again and again. And by the way, I put two agains in there because that's all there was room for. But it's again and again and again and again and again and again. And sometimes before I can even say again, I need to do it again, right? Because <laughs> there's this battle, this struggle that goes forth. Even though I want 
Christ to rule in my life. My nature is to take back control. But at any moment, anytime I see evidence of the fact that I'm running my own life, okay, I can stop right there and know that I am and just turn it back over to God. And He is there to sit back on the throne of my life. Third principle says, blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. The principle says, I rest in Him and become all that I can be. Once I stop trying to run my own life, I stop trying to produce something good out of my life by my own will. I know that God made me for a good purpose, and if He reigns the rules in my life, He's going to make it happen. I can rest. I can relax. I don't have to strive or stress over any of it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. When I begin to rest in Him, then I find my spirit with Him in control, me resting in His control, longing for more and more. Because what happens is, I recognize that sometimes, even after I've turned control of my life over to God, there are little things about my life that I haven't quite relinquished to Him. Sometimes it takes time and situations to reveal those various situations. Every time one comes up, I can stop and give it to God and say, God, you're in control of my life. I'm going to give that to you too. Sometimes it might be a memory of something bad that happened to you and you're still letting it drive you or cause a grudge or a chip to be on your shoulder, right? And it takes a situation that, that brings the worst out in you and you go like, where'd that come from? Oh, that's right. I'm still running that part of my life. Stop and give it to God. I long for more and grow in Christ. Then blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now notice how far down this principle is. But know this also, that you turn control of your life over to God. One of the last but most profound areas it will begin to influence are your relationships with people. Okay. You may put them out of your mind here or think that's just your responsibility, but God wants to take responsibility for the people in your life. <laughs> but you got to let it go. And if you're still trying to run their life and dictate outcomes, then you need to let it go. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I welcome God's grace. I know that I need what God has and wants to give to me. And when He gives it to me, then I can turn around and give it to other people. One of the expressions of grace that's most difficult, some of you have probably found this, is when you have to give somebody the grace of letting them live their own lives. Like You know somebody who's doing something and it's destructive and it's tearing them apart and it's ruining their life and it's not doing such great things for your life either. Okay? And you'd like, to, you'd like to gently help them to do better. Like that, right? That's never going to get them to a better place, is it? What's going to get them to a better place? The grace of God. Where are they going to get the grace of God? Through your life. When you extend more of God's grace to them, you're empowering them to at least have a chance at doing better, being better, thinking better, living better. Today's lesson says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
I set my priorities and sharpen my focus. Now, be sure of this. We've covered a lot of theological ground from the beginning of this series until now. And all of that has to be happening before you get to this beatitude. It's not like you can start here, because you can't. You'll never set your priorities in a God-honoring way or stay focused on what's most important until you put into action the other priorities, the other beatitudes. Priorities. Do you have them? Most of us would put them down like this. We draw a list. One, two, three, four. This is most important. This is next most important. This is next most important. Well, let me give you a couple recommendations about the kingdom of God. Uh, first of all, most of you don't really live that way. You have priorities, but the priority is set by whatever is most urgent. The person who's most in your face at that moment, that becomes your chief priority, right? I know it's true. The, the bill that came first. The person who's yelling the loudest. The part of your body that's hurting the worst. That always gets your first attention. And that's how you set your priorities. It's a lousy way to set your priorities. Because aches and pains and problems and people will come and go. And you can't set your priorities that way. Secondly, in the kingdom of God, there's only one priority. <laughs> okay? That sounds simple, doesn't it? Right? But, and we think, like, well, I've I, I got to list my thing. First priority is this. Sec, so second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. No, no, it doesn't work that way. You embrace the one priority of the kingdom, and then every other priority just falls into place. just becomes obvious. The reason why it doesn't seem obvious to you, like, oh, I only have so much time, and this person wants me to be with them, and this person wants me to be with them, and then the, and work is calling me to do this, and da, da, and, and you're going like, oh, seems like I'm, I better get my priorities. Or, no, no. You only need one priority, and when you have that one priority, then what comes next will always be obvious. It never has been obvious to you, so you're doubting what I'm saying, because you've never set that one priority as your only priority. I dare you. Priorities. In talking about that one priority, here's a story from the New Testament that perfectly illustrates this. This is found only in Luke's Gospel, but it's a curious story. It, it appears that Jesus has gone to the temple for Sabbath worship. That means he's in Judea, he's, uh, he's down in Jerusalem, and uh, while in Jerusalem, as a good Jew, you can only travel just so far on the Sabbath. So they've done their worship thing, and it's time for lunch. How many of you get hungry after church? How many of you get hungry before the pastor's done preaching? Yeah, see, that happens. It even happened to Jesus, right? And so then after that, Jesus was looking for some place to go eat. Don't you wonder where people went to eat before there was a McDonald's drive-up window? <laughs> right? But yeah, if you wanted something right now, it probably wasn't going to happen. And he had to find some place to eat. And so Jesus, fortunately, had lots of friends, didn't he? And he had some real precious friends. Um, three of them were two sisters and a brother named Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. Remember? Okay? That'd make, make him a good friend of mine. I don't know about you. Right? Some people I just not soon see raised from the dead now that I think about it. But generally, people I like, yeah. Uh, we didn't get that on tape, did we? <laughs> we can edit, edit that. 
So um, Jesus goes to Bethany, which is a little suburb of Jerusalem, not too far from Jerusalem, so it's not a violation of the Jewish code. And he goes to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus for lunch after Sabbath day worship. Now the problem is that Martha and Mary and Lazarus are not expecting Jesus. Okay. Now this is a pleasant occurrence if Jesus just shows up unexpectedly unless you feel this heavy responsibility to fix lunch for Jesus. Okay. And how many of you ever had an unexpected guest show up? Okay. And they looked hungry. Right, yeah. And you're thinking, didn't have time to go to the grocery store. <laughs> Don't have all the special things to set the table like I like to when Jesus shows up for lunch, right? Right? All the things I'd like to fix for Jesus take hours to prepare. No microwaves back then, okay? No, like one of those like services you call in and they just bring the food. None of those. None of those available in that day. What am I going to do? So the story is told. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village, the village is Bethany, where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he had to say. But Martha was distracted. How many of you ever got distracted? How many of you ever got distracted by another person? Okay. And then you wanted to kill them. Yeah, that one? Okay. But Martha was distracted by the preparations that had to be made. Remember why I talked about urgent things usually get the priority attention? We got to eat! That was the priority. That's what was driving everything. What are we going to fix? How are we going to fix it? Don't have the ingredients. So she came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Jesus said something that was a good answer for Jesus. Husbands, don't ever try to say this to your wife. Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things that were necessary, or indeed only one. That sounds like what I was saying, wasn't it? There's only one priority, and Mary has chosen what is better. Now, a curious thing, because I know Koine Greek, is that this word better has an obvious meaning in our current English language and it's not the meaning of the word there. Because we think of better as superior. It doesn't mean superior. It means primary. Let me explain to you primary. Today, when I got dressed, I put on shoes and socks. Exhibit A. Okay. Which one did I put on first? It doesn't matter. Well, that would explain a lot, Beth. <laughs> In normal society, <laughs> it does matter. We put on socks first because socks are more important? No, because they go on first. Okay? In the normal process of dressing, socks 
Proceed, I'm going to think about that all day. Proceed shoes. That's the word. Mary has chosen the primary part, that which has to come first, the initial priority out of which all other priorities flow. Mary has chosen what is better, and so it will not be taken from her. Our beatitude for the day. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In a moment you're going to see the marvelous connection. First, some words, because I like words. Pure. When we use the word pure in modern English, we're usually thinking clean, not dirty. And in a sense, that's true of the word, but it's in a more specific meaning, not in the general meaning of the word as it was used in first century Koine Greek. The word pure here is the word that means unpolluted by foreign influences. Think of this like this. Um, this morning I wore the wrong kind of shirt for this illustration, but pretend that on some days I wear a white shirt. Okay, And then when I wear a white shirt, I always do something that I probably did with this shirt, but you can't tell, which is I immediately, you know, I get up early and usually I'm kind of half awake and I spill half my coffee on my shirt. Okay, and ties are all good for, that's why I wear the ties that have all the stuff on it, because you can't really tell when you pour stuff on it, right? And uh, <laughs> when I do that, okay, my shirt, 98% is probably pristine, clean, shiny white, but there on it is this big round spot, and if I'm up here without a sweater on with my white shirt on, all you're going to see is that spot, right? You're going to like, <laughs> that is something that doesn't belong on that shirt. That's what makes it impure, isn't it? The spot doesn't belong there. Okay. That's the meaning of the word pure. It doesn't mean clean. It means uncluttered. Some of you understand clutter really well, don't you? <laughs> okay. Here's the deal. Okay. There's clutter, and then there's clutter. As we're going to find out. Blessed are the pure in heart. The heart, as it's used in the Bible, does not refer to the muscle that pumps blood through your body, nor does it, in the same way, represent the place where Valentine emotions come from. Those are all both awesome, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the deepest level of human consciousness. So when he says... Purity in heart, he's talking about somebody's coming over to your house this afternoon. Okay? You know they're coming, but you only have about a half hour's notice. So you take care of the clutter, don't you? Right? You clean it up. You tidy everything up. You put away the stuff that's out. Okay? But what do you not clean? What would be a disaster if they showed up and while you were in the kitchen they started looking at? Closets, yeah, but your, maybe your bedroom. Closets, basements, garages, yeah, dishwashers, okay. All that kind of stuff, right. Because that's where you stuck the clutter. The closet, the basement, the garage, that's your heart. <laughs> He's saying, blessed are those who don't just tidy up the outside because they have to go to church today, Okay. 
but they unclutter their heart of all of the chaos. And again, this isn't dirtiness. This is all of the stuff that frankly doesn't belong in your life. And its presence in your life is just causing confusion and chaos because there's no sense of the priorities in your life because whichever piece of the clutter is most in your face, that's the one tension, right? Jesus says, that's no way to live. And that's not the way we live in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, what's the promise? See God. Now that's interesting, because the Bible's pretty clear about the fact that God is spirit, and you can't see Him with physical eyes. But this word of see, and by the way, it's pretty interesting, there are four Koine Greek words translated see. Okay? And one of them is this word that means grasp. Perceive with clarity. Nothing, you know what clutter does? Okay? It distracts you from seeing the beauty, the order, right? <laughs> the value, the purpose. All those things are, are disguised by the clutter. He says, purity of heart with God causes you to see life as it is. See people as they are. See situations as they are. See God for who He is. Not who you've been told that He is. Not who you fear that He is. Not who you're worried about Him being. But who He really is. So, blessed are the pure in heart. It works like this. Kingdom citizens are called to a singular, one only, devotion. Jesus made that abundantly clear, didn't he? To his disciples, he once said, No man can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. And we don't think that way, do we? We think, no. As long as you balance it carefully, you can love a bunch of stuff. And then you end up in conflicts in all of those areas, almost as if you hated them because you didn't focus on the one thing you were trying to love. Jesus is on to something, isn't he? He also said this, and it seems strange to us in a vacuum. In light of this, it seems perf- like it makes perfect sense. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your mother and father and come and follow me. He's talking about degrees there. He, remember how we said, you think priorities, one, two, three, four. So we would put uh, God, one, two, spouse, three, children, something like that, or maybe the other way around. However, you down, right? Work relationships, down and down. But he says, no, no. Only priority is necessary. When you get the one priority right and embrace it with all your life, Everything else is suddenly makes sense and falls into place. You see God. You see God in them. You see God in them. You see God in this situation. You see God in this situation. You see what God's up to over here. It all starts making sense when you only have one priority, and that is to love Him. 
When asked by one of the Pharisees this question, Jesus said, yeah, this is, you may remember, he said, what is the most important of the laws? And the word important there is the same exact word that was translated in the story of Mary and Martha, better. <laughs> okay? He, he, he says, here's the law from which all other laws flow. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now that's curious. Because we think like, well, I, God's got the first part of my heart, and then my wife's got the second part of my heart. You know, go, no, no. You give all your heart to God. And through that heart for God, He'll give you more than enough heart to love all the people He brings into your life. But recognize what belongs to God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Kingdom citizens are called to a singular devotion that ignites a singular motivation. You ever do something you go like, why don't I do that? That's a really good question. Because if you could ever get down to why you do the dumb stuff you do, you'd find the problem. What drives you? Some of you who have struggled with addictions, we always say this, with an addiction, it's always this way. It's not where you drink or use or whatever. It's not what you drink. It's not when you drink. It's not even how much you drink. It's always why. Always why. Always why. Well, part of the why reason is you love it. <laughs> Okay? In other words, you've given devotion that belongs to God to a substance. You can also do the same thing with a job, a car, a house, a human relationship. It belongs to God. It's never going to be rewarding if you try to piecemeal it out to the people and situations in your life. Particularly if like, you give a piece to it or to this person over here and then they dismay you. So you got to extract it and replug it back into this person's life over here, right? We have a singular devotion that ignites a singular motivation. That is, it drives us. The devotion is we love God. The drive is we know we live to glorify God. To bring honor to God. To live lives that fulfill the purpose that He ordained for our lives to have. Now, by the way, some of that will be, for those of you who are still struggling with the, how do I love the people in my life? Part of that glorifying Him will be, who is God? He loves people. Well, so then, if you love Him, you'll start loving people like you've never loved them before, too. See, it's not like it's a substitute for that. It's the thing that places everything where it's meant to be in your life. Glorifying God means God's nature, God's character, God's plan and behavior is to be reflected in everything I am, everything I do, every relationship I have. That's glorifying God. Paul says this in Romans chapter 15. The goal is that with one mind, with one voice, we may all glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A singular devotion that ignites a singular motivation 
as we follow a singular plan for life. Now, that may seem curious to you because you're thinking like, I thought he made us all different. Oh boy, did he. Okay? And God has a unique plan for your life. (laughs) For sure. Know that. But we have a shared plan because here's the plan. The plan is not for you to do the smartest thing, the most spiritual thing, the most impressive thing. It's for you to do the thing that God is calling you to do and nobody else. And so what's my responsibility? To obey what God is calling me to do. What's your responsibility? To obey what God is calling me to do? No, no. To obey what God is calling you to do. And yet, I'll talk to even mature Christians, and I'm amazed to hear them go, well, we're weighing all the pros and cons. The school system's better over here. And but, but then the job provides this benefit over here. And we get, oh, I don't. And then at the end of that, the dumb pastor has to ask the question and screw everything up. But what does God want you to do? They do. They say, no, actually, they don't say, I don't know. They look like, what does that got to do with anything? And I'm here to tell you, that has everything to do with everything. Because if the first question you're asking is, what do I believe God wants me to do? And you don't settle or move or change or even think about it until you have a handle on what God wants you to do. You'll always be right where God wants you to be. Doing right what God wants you to do. And is there a better place than that? I'm, well, you say that. But let's say today you get really sick. And you go to the hospital. And you're going to start praying. And what are you going to be praying? God, get me well and get me out of this hospital. Right? (laughs) My insurance is only going to cover so long. And that is not the prayer at this point, is it? The prayer is, God, you must have me here for a reason. Don't let me leave this hospital until I've fulfilled the purpose for me to be here. Then you can add if you want. But as soon as you're finished, could you get me out of here in a hurry, please? (laughs) Make me better as soon as you're finished using this? Why would I want to be well if God has a plan for me being sick? Why would I want to be in another city if God has a plan for me to be in this city? Why would I want another job if God has a plan for me to be in this job? Why would I want a different boss if God wants me to have this boss? Huh. Okay. But that's the life of loving God is what it's all about. I love God. I want what He wants for me. A singular plan for life to obey God. In 1 John chapter 3, John writes, The one who keeps God's commands lives in Him and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He has given us. In other words, He's saying, Now, when you love God and when you're asking the supreme question, God, what do you want me to do? Lead me, guide me, direct me. The Holy Spirit who lives inside of you will confirm and direct those very things. You doubt that. 
You doubt it because you've never tried it because you've never made your life based on one priority of loving God. If you do, this will make perfect sense. Okay? At that moment, you'll know this. You'll never be left out in limbo. God's not up in heaven going, oh no, now they're counting on me to show them what to do. I wonder what I want them to do. (laughs) That's you. That's not God. He's got a perfect plan for your life. He's been waiting for this moment. We follow a singular plan and reach for a singular goal. What is the goal? The goal is that we would know God. Not know about God or know stuff about God, but this is the sense of know intimately. This is the sense in that, have you ever read um, the genealogies of the Old Testament in the King James Version? And -and so-and-so knew so-and-so. and Okay, it doesn't mean, well, hey, nice to know you. (laughs) It's talking about the most intimate physical act of sexual intercourse. That's the only way I know to produce babies, right? And that's what it's talking about. So now, translated in the New Testament, Paul uses the same word and says, here's my goal. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. In other words, I eliminated all other priorities and made this my only priority. I consider them, all the other priorities, garbage. Now, that sounds kind of rough, doesn't it? They cleaned it up in the NIV. Anybody remember what the king used to say? Dung, yeah, it would be dung. Yeah, thank you. Who, who knew that? What, you're... She is a smart lady, isn't she? Dung, yeah, it's dung. Manure, crap. Okay, that's what he said. Now, is it crap? No, it is not. He said, I consider it. Remember what I said? Jesus said, Unless you hate your mother and father. Well, we know because he had already told them to love their mother and father and to respect their mother and father and all of that, that he wasn't talking about hatred. He was talking about when you compare the two, it isn't even a relevant question. It's like hate and love. You've got one thing you're committed to, one God you love, one will that you're committed to. All of the other relationships that are important to you will fall into their proper place When you do, everything else, garbage. And long for a singular destiny. That is to be with God. There should be a tension in your life. The tension is, God has given you the capacity to want to stay alive. Right? That's why you can only hold your breath just so long. And nobody ever committed suicide that way. Because <laughs> something instinctively you want to stay alive. Of course. But we know that when this life is over, what lies ahead is better. If that's not just a religious bromide that you repeat, but something you really believe, then you understand this idea of what Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure of heart. 
In other words, blessed are those who only want to be one place. Who only long to be one place. And that's with God. And are only here because God has a purpose for them to be here until someday they'll be in His presence. And that tension exists. Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians. We are confident, says Paul, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, I can't be at home with God and be here on assignment. But God has a purpose for me being here on assignment. But know this, as soon as my assignment's done, I can't wait to be at home in His presence. And that's the way kingdom of heaven citizens think. That's why, I think, Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. He's saying we can have a bit of heaven on earth. In heaven, Jesus rules. Jesus sits on the throne, and everything is beautiful and good because He does. You can live that way down here on earth. But if you do, understand, this world is not going to cooperate. (laughs) When you are living by the kingdom of heaven principles... The average person in this world is not going to walk up to you, shake your hand and say, congratulations, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. No, they're going to go, you're crazy. Because this is not our home. Heaven is. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. They will not only see God, they will see all of life and every other relationship and situation and activity of life through Him. Through the perspective that is God. And so as a result, I set my, I misspoke, priority. I'll change that for next week. I set my priority and sharpen my focus on that, on Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're rejoicing today in your marvelous goodness to us as you've invited us to live in your kingdom. Forgive us for settling for so much less than you have planned for us. Thank you for redirecting our attention to that which is not only most important, but supremely important and primary in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a song that...